0: We've all been there. You're standing in a museum, staring at a painting, and all you can think is, I don't get it. To me, knowing the story behind an artwork is a huge part of knowing how to look at it. I'm Amanda, the host of the Art of History podcast, where we view history through the lens of some really great works of art. Each episode, we dive deep into the bigger picture behind some familiar and maybe not so familiar pieces. Check out Art of History now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Soundsington Media!
0: Hey Brian. Hey Meredith. Question for you. Let's say you've got a camera and you're in space. What would you take a picture of?
2: Hmm, let's see. I would take a picture of Earth. Okay. What about you? What would you take a picture of?
0: Well, I would hope that you're with me because I'm scared to go to space, so I hope that we go together and I would take a picture of you in space.
2: Ah, my space face.
0: Hey, did you know that NASA's James Webb Space Telescope is scheduled to launch in October to look for the unobserved formation of the first galaxies?
2: Yeah, and did you know that Webb might give us a closer glimpse at the beginning of time?
0: (gasps) I'm Meredith Stepien.
2: And I'm Brian Holden. And this is Reach, a space podcast for kids. Welcome to Reach, a space podcast for kids.
0: Brian, this is the second season of our show. Season two. Season two. Wee. Wee.
2: Yeah.
0: Whoa.
2: Okay. Season two promises to have even more expert guests, at-home activities.
0: And, of course, fun conversations with some out-of-this-world guests.
2: And for our first episode this season, we're focusing, literally, on some far-out places in our galaxy.
0: And to get ready, Brian, I thought we could ask our listeners if they were able to take a picture of something in space, what would it be?
2: Great call. Let's hear what they had to say.
0: Hi, my name is Rosie. I'm five years old. And if I would like to take
2: a picture in space, I would take a picture of a tardigrade. My name is O.C. and I am six and if I could take a picture of something I would take a, a picture of the Big
1: Dipper.
0: My name is Oren and, and, and I'm four and a half and if I would take some, a picture of something in outer space I will pick the Galaxies. Hi, my name is Blythe. I'm 11 years old. And if I were to take a picture of something in outer space, I'd probably take multiple pictures around the Earth so then I could prove to people that the Earth isn't flat so then they can finally understand that. Hey, Rosie, Osi, Oren. And Blythe. Great responses.
2: Yeah, thank you guys. We loved hearing from you.
0: This week on Reach, we had the chance to sit down with Dr. Eric Smith, NASA's James Webb Space Telescope Program Scientist and Astrophysics Division Chief Scientist.
2: So cool.
0: We learned all about mirrors, spectrographs, and hexagons relating to a space telescope that's more than an incredible science instrument. It's a spacecraft.
2: Dr. Eric Smith, welcome to REACH. It is an honor to have you on our podcast here. For our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do?
3: Sure, uh, I'd be happy to. So uh, I'm an astronomer. I work for NASA. I work at NASA headquarters, which is in Washington, D.C. And there I work on the James Webb Space Telescope. I'm what's known as the program scientist for a web, as we call it. And uh, it's really exciting to be working on the biggest telescope that humanity has ever put into space.
2: Um, We're gonna talk about the telescope and all the amazing things that it's gonna be able to do. But first, I wondered if you could just give us a little background about who James Webb was, the namesake for the telescope. Yeah, that's
3: a great question, because not many people uh, may have heard of James Webb. He was the second administrator for NASA, the second person to lead uh, the space agency in the early 1960s, and he is primarily remembered for being the architect of the Apollo program. So he's the person that helped put together that whole effort to send people to the moon and bring them back safely. What most people don't know about uh, James Webb, the man, is that he insisted NASA have scientists as part of the staff. Why did he do that? Well, he knew that if he had to do this job of sending people to the moon and bringing them back, he'd have to have the best scientists and engineers uh, he could get his hands on. And that meant they had to be able to do some of their science and engineering research. And so the whole reason there's any science at all uh, at NASA is because of James Webb. And so that's why it's fitting that its biggest space telescope is named after him.
2: It's amazing to think that, you know, with maybe without James Webb, we wouldn't have all the amazing research and uh, and sort of deep space knowledge and exploration that we have today. Science Uh, is so synonymous with NASA, but really it kind of started out as an aerospace sort of project, didn't it?
3: That's exactly right. In fact, NASA came from an old agency called NACA, and its whole purpose was for doing aeronautics or aviation research. And so when space became the newest frontier, uh, the old NACA organization became NASA, and uh, Webb was the person who brought space science research into that. MACA did a little bit of aeronautics research, which is still done by NASA. It's the first A in NASA, aeronautics.
2: So let's talk about the telescope itself. Now, we've heard that this is going to be, as you said, the largest telescope. We've also heard it's incredibly complex and a challenging telescope to construct. Why is that?
3: Well, this Uh, complexity and the challenge in building it all comes from the fact that it is much too big a telescope to put into a rocket in one piece, so to speak. Mm. That is, we must unfold the telescope and some other structures once we launch it uh, away from Earth. And it's this ability to transform itself or unfold that makes it complex. And in that complexity is where the challenges are. If you can imagine a table, uh, these are called drop-leaf tables, or imagine a round table, and then the two sides can kind of fold back. So you have a large part in the middle and then two parts that fold down. Well, that's the way that Webb Telescope Mirror folds too. So it's folded down for launch, and then when we launch it, those two pieces on the side fold out to make the complete mirror. The other really uh, interesting part about Webb is that it doesn't have a tube around that mirror. Most people, when they think of a telescope, think of a big, long tube that one looks through. So Webb doesn't have that tube. Uh, Instead, we have a big shield on one side of that mirror, almost like an umbrella or a parasol, and that shield keeps light from the sun and Earth from hitting the telescope. That shield is even bigger than the mirror, so it, too, has to be folded all up inside the rocket and then unfold once it gets into space.
2: Wow. Okay. So you've got an incredibly big shield that protects the telescope itself from uh, heat and rays and things like that from the sun. You've got a super big mirror that, or if I'm correct, it, that's what's collecting the light that the telescope uses to do all of its science, basically. What other cool instruments are aboard the Web?
3: So Webb will be a telescope that takes pictures. It has cameras on it. Uh, so just like your listeners may know about the Hubble Space Telescope or other space telescopes, take all kinds of cool pictures. Webb will take those same really sharp pictures. But it also has instruments called spectrographs that split up the light that's collected by this large mirror into much smaller wavelengths, and so individual pieces of light that scientists will use to tell what kind of elements or molecules are emitting that light. So we can use this telescope not only to take pictures to learn about the universe, but we can use these spectrographs, what all this material is made up of and how it's moving. And so we can learn about the physics and the science behind the amazing pictures.
2: Wow, that's so cool. This was always one of my favorite things about working at the Adler, is it always came back to so much of what we know about space, deep space, even near space, because uh, of our limited ability to travel in space. All of our knowledge is based on light in the collection of light. So, it sounds like this is an incredibly important project for uh, the furthering of our knowledge about space.
3: It will address almost all areas of astronomy, but the main reason that we set off designing or building Webb was to try to see light from the very first stars and galaxies that lit up after the Big Bang. Uh, Many of your listeners, again, will have heard of the Big Bang, this enormous explosion that started the universe, but there were no stars and galaxies for a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. And the universe was dark in some sense, but then stars, galaxies formed, and the universe lit up or began to light up again. And it is that uh, watching the universe turn the lights on that we're looking for with Webb.
2: How are you able to see light from billions of years ago? Well, that's why we have such a large mirror.
3: This uh, search for the earliest galaxies or the first galaxies has been tried with other telescopes, and they haven't been able to see them because they were too faint. The objects were too faint and the mirrors couldn't collect enough light. And this light primarily comes to us in the infrared and many of the telescopes that were used before. Uh, worked in the visible part of the wavelength, the light we can see with our eyes. And there, these early universe objects are just too faint to be seen. One way that your listeners might think about this need for such a large mirror would be to compare, if you were to try to go out and collect rain in a very slow rain, so it wasn't pouring rain, just a few drops here and there, the way you would need to collect this paint rain, is with a very big bucket. If you just had a little glass, you wouldn't collect many raindrops. You need a very big bucket to collect rain if it's not coming down very fast. And this light from the earliest galaxies is coming very sparsely. And so we need a big light bucket. And that's our uh, big mirror for Webb to collect it.
2: Wow, that is such a good analogy. Can you tell us when the telescope is launching? Any challenges that come along with the launch?
3: When we talk about the launch, one other thing that brings to mind is who is actually working on Webb. Well, you see, Webb is a NASA's big telescope, but we have partnerships with the Canadian Space Agency and the European Space Agency. And both those space agencies are providing science instruments, some of those cameras and spectrographs we talked about on board. But Europe is also providing us the launch. So we will ride on Europe's biggest rocket, which they call an Ariane 5 rocket. And they do their launching from French Guiana on the northeastern coast of South America. So once Webb is all done with its testing, we're finishing that up this spring, we'll get it ready and then we'll ship it. We'll actually put it on a ship and it will go down to South America where it will be launched. Uh, Now, even though Webb is very special to construct, once we're at the French uh, Guyana Launch Center, we're just a very big payload for them. So we will follow the normal procedures that uh, all the launch payloads go through about the only thing that we have it's different is because our mirror uh, is exposed we have to be in a very clean environment we don't want any dust or dirt to get on the mirror so we have some extra cleanliness types of procedures we have to worry about but otherwise we're just a normal payload for an Ariane 5 launch
2: wow that is so cool it's truly an international effort i i didn't know that that's amazing So, all right, so we're sort of looking at later in the spring. I've also heard, and you've talked about, that the telescope is going to unfold in space. So what is that process going to be like? Can you tell me a little bit about that?
3: About 30 minutes after we launch, we have our first deployment or unfolding. And this is actually one that almost all spacecraft do. And that's when a big solar array or a solar panel folds out. And what that does is it gives the energy to the James Webb uh, Space Telescope. So that will happen, and that's a pretty common deployment. Then we start heading out past the moon, and over the next two weeks, we'll go through this very uh, complex dance, if you will, of unfolding of the sun shield uh, that keeps the telescope cold, and then the mirrors. And once all those are Uh, unfolded, then the mirrors segments themselves, that's something else that's a little different about web. We don't have one big mirror. We're made up of 18 different hexagonally shaped pieces. Each of those gets released from a big frame that holds it for launch, and then we move those about. And so even though the big unfolding takes about two weeks after launch, it will take us six months until we have all the components configured uh, and be ready to do science
2: six months. Wow. that I had no idea about that either, even once it gets up into space, it's not instant gratification. It's going to take a while before you're you're ready to start uh, collecting some of that data and stuff that you've been waiting to to get, huh?
3: yeah and it's a little bit of a challenge for the space agencies involved because normally you launch something and it's pretty exciting a lot of fire and smoke as the rocket goes up and then people think oh you know next week i'll see a picture well for us it'll take another half year till we're ready to release those amazing pictures and spectra of uh, the distant universe and perhaps some even some exoplanets
2: nearby Oh my gosh, exoplanets too, is that on the docket for James Webb or is it going to be looking for exoplanets?
3: When we started building James Webb many years ago, uh, we didn't know about that many exoplanets in the universe. Uh, now of course we know of thousands of them. and. People, scientists, are, are already planning to use Webb to study the atmospheres of these exoplanets. So they will use these spectrographs that we talked about to try to find out what are those atmospheres made of. Is there water in the atmosphere? Is there carbon dioxide? So they'll be looking for those Uh, atmospheres that might be habitable uh, and that would be very exciting I think someday to go out and look at the night sky and know that oh you know just a little bit to the right of that star over there uh, is a distant star maybe we can't see it with the naked eye but it has a planet that has an atmosphere just like Earth that would be very cool
2: Wow that would be so cool And, you know, I'm so glad that you mentioned um, the shape of the mirror. You said it's made up of 18 uh, hexagonal shapes. Is that right? That's right. I want our listeners to imagine this because we keep saying, you know, the mirror of the telescope and stuff like that. But look at pictures of the James Webb Space Telescope. It looks like a giant golden honeycomb. It's so cool looking. Yeah,
3: that, uh, that hexagonal shape for each of the segments Turns out that's a very efficient way to uh, segment or cut up a mirror and then uh, put it back together again. It's a mathematically very efficient way to do it. But as you pointed out, it looks like a honeycomb. And I think one of the unique aspects of Webb is not only is it a powerful science instrument, it's a beautiful spacecraft with this big gold a honeycomb mirror, and this big silvery pink sunshield. And that beauty captures a different kind of audience sometimes. Uh, scientists or people who like science, they're always interested in it. But now it's this beautiful thing, too, and that uh, excites some people.
2: So we were talking about how it takes kind of a, an effort of people all around the world to launch this spacecraft, the web. Uh, Who decides what the web does once it's up there? Like, who's in charge of what it looks at?
3: Well, uh, Brian, the way this works is we have uh, a call goes out once a year for ideas, and it goes out worldwide where we ask people, what would you do with the James Webb Space Telescope? And so people send in their ideas. They're pretty detailed uh, proposals, we call them, for how they would use these cameras and spectrographs to look and study objects. And then all these ideas get reviewed by uh, other scientists, and they pick the best ones. So uh, through this process we call peer review, the most exciting ideas are picked every year. And so each year we're always looking at the newest and most exciting things to do with web.
2: That's amazing. So every year the whole world has a chance to get to use this, uh, this amazing new piece of technology.
3: That's right. And some of your older listeners now may, even if they go into astronomy, may someday be part of the groups or people who put in these proposals. So uh, this may be their telescope, too.
2: What are you most passionate about when you think about exploring space?
3: When uh, I was uh, young and growing up, uh, That was the time that the Apollo missions were just starting out, and uh, people were going to the moon, and so it was in the news all the time, and uh, Star Trek was on television. And so my uh, imagination was captured uh, as a young boy about space and thinking about going into space, and that led me to studying uh, astronomy and physics and just learning about space. When I then went to school to to become an astronomer, my fascination was with galaxies that run into each other and collide, and what that does to the shapes of the galaxies. And if it turns on the activity that uh, in the centers of these galaxies where there are black holes. And so that's what I became really interested in, and it's that fascination with very deep objects in space gets me excited when I think about stuff that Webb is going to be doing.
2: That is awesome. Well, we're so grateful to you for your time, Dr. Smith. Uh, Before we go, what advice would you have for any of our young listeners dreaming about a career in astronomy?
3: I would say if you have the opportunity make sure at some point in your young lives, you get out to a place where the sky is really dark. For some people, this will be easy because you live far away from a city and you can uh, get out and see the night sky. Uh, if you're near a city, uh, it's a little bit more challenging, but I encourage you to get someplace to really see the sky uh, as people saw it before city lights. It's it'll a mind-blowing experience for one. Uh, and then the other thing I would say is Nature, astronomy, speaks in mathematics. It's the language of the universe. And so as you are thinking about your career in astronomy, uh, think about math too. Uh, Maybe those two don't go naturally hand in hand, but you will find there actually is incredible beauty in the universe when you can think about it in terms of the math that goes in with the physics.
2: Well said. Very well said. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Smith.
3: Thank you. You guys are you are doing the work of priming the pump for our audiences that will become future users of Webb and its successors. So thanks for all that you guys are doing.
2: Wow. What an honor to speak with Dr. Eric Smith about the James Webb Space Telescope.
0: I can't wait to see some of the new images from the far reaches of the galaxy. Maybe even a look inside dust clouds where stars and planetary systems are forming today.
2: And speaking of far-out communications, we were lucky to have a super far-out conversation with Pluto, one of our interstellar neighbors, in this week's edition of Did You Know?
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me, Brian. Thanks, Meredith. So, did you know? that I was discovered by those of you on Earth in 1930 by the Lowell Observatory and I was named by Venetia Burney, an 11-year-old girl from Oxford, England. Cool, huh? Whoa, cool. Did you also know that a year on Pluto is 248 Earth years? Whoa, and A day on Pluto lasts 153 hours, or about six Earth days. Ooh, pack a lunch. One day lasts six Earth days? Wow! Did you know that Pluto is about 1,400 miles wide? That's about half the width of the United States. So, I'm not super huge, but I keep it tight. Hey... Did you also know that while I used to be classified as a planet, in 2006, I was reclassified as a dwarf planet? Wah, wah. Oh, well, it was a good run. I was just excited to be invited.
0: Aw, well, is there anything else on your mind that you'd like to share?
1: Well, I guess I am a little curious. I wonder how Earth students are going to learn the names of the planets now that Pluto really isn't a planet anymore. For example, I know that Earth students used to learn the names of the planets in order from the sun by singing this song. My very educated mother just served us nine pizza pies where the first letter of each word coordinates with the first letter of the planets. So, my Mercury, very Venus, educated Earth, mother Mars, Just Jupiter served Saturn, us Uranus, 9, Neptune, pizza pies, Pluto. That's me. Well, it used to be me. I guess now they're just going to have to sing, My very educated mother just served us nothing. Ah, well, all is fair in love and planet reclassification. No hard feelings.
0: Sorry to hear that, Pluto, but we're really glad that you're around.
1: Aw, thanks, guys. It's always nice to be remembered.
0: Pluto, thanks so much for joining us on Reach. You're welcome back anytime.
1: Brian, Meredith, the pleasure was all mine. I was just happy to be invited. This is Pluto signing off. Never forget! woo We love you, Pluto. Hey, Brian,
0: have you ever seen cosmic objects transform once they're seen in different wavelengths of light?
2: I haven't.
0: It's super cool. Sometimes when we can't see certain things with our regular eyeballs, we can use machines and tools to help us see things in different wavelengths of light. So sometimes when we're looking in space and we see something that looks to us like a cloud of dust, sometimes we can use a machine to help see all the little things inside of it, like new stars.
2: Whoa, that's awesome. Hey, Meredith, have you ever taken the Hubble Trivia Challenge? No. Here's a trivia question for you. How big is the Hubble Space Telescope? Is it the size of a school bus, a house, a fridge, or a car? I'll give you five seconds on our interstellar clock.
0: What? Five seconds? Where'd you get the interstellar clock from? I've never seen that before. Four seconds have gone Uh, by. uh, Time's up! Okay, um, I'm gonna guess a car a small a small
2: car a small car okay well was i right you'll have to visit the link in the show notes to find out
0: oh come on brian Uh
2: all right fine it's the size of a school bus
0: oh that's bigger than i thought
2: (laughs) it is Now, if you're listening and you would like to learn more about telescopes in space, check out our show notes for a link to Hubble Inspires.
0: And for a link to a super cool online art exhibit inspired by the James Webb Space Telescope.
2: Sound effects not included.
0: You know, Brian, it's amazing to think about what's out there in space, all that we're able to see, and all that we're not able
2: to see. Totally. I wonder what we'll learn from the James Webb Space Telescope.
0: Um, I'll bet we'll learn that out there, there is a planet that's shaped just like a bunny.
2: Okay, I mean, that would definitely be a unique planet shape. I'm excited to learn if there's life on other planets, you know? And that's one thing the James Webb can do. Like, so maybe there's a planet that has bunnies on it.
0: (laughs) And it's pretty cool that we can suggest what the James Webb Space Telescope should look for.
2: I know. We'd love to hear your ideas about what you'd look for in space. Just send us an idea or photo on social media and be sure to tag at Reach the Podcast.
0: Thanks for joining us for Reach, a space podcast for kids. We're your hosts, Meredith Stepien
2: and Brian Holden. This episode of Reach was written by Sandy Marshall with Nate DeFort, Meredith Stepien and Brian Holden.
0: Reach is produced by Nate DeFort and Sandy Marshall, who's a solar system ambassador for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and edited by Nate DeFort.
2: Our theme song and additional music was composed by Jesse Case.
0: And our logo was created by Stephen Lyons.
2: It was a real honor to speak with Dr. Eric Smith, NASA's James Webb Space Telescope Program Scientist, who also serves as the Astrophysics Division Chief Scientist. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Smith.
0: We'd also like to offer thanks to Natasha Pinol, communications chief for the James Webb Space Telescope Program, and to Kay Ferrari at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory.
2: Pluto was voiced by the incredible Jack McBrayer, who you may know as Fixit Felix in the films Wreck-It Ralph, the sequel Ralph Breaks the Internet, as well as the title character in Disney's Wander Over Yonder, and of course from playing Kenneth Parcell on NBC's 30 Rock.
0: And a big thanks to our Reach Learning community for their help today.
2: Yes, and thank you to Rosie, Osi, Oren, and Blythe.
0: Do you have a question about space that's been on your mind?
2: Let us know. Our bi-weekly segment, entitled Reaching Out, is our chance to answer your questions. Tune in to Reaching Out next week to find out how you can be featured in an upcoming episode.
0: Hey, Brian, did you know that the universe has the same temperature everywhere?
2: That's right. It's negative 2.725 degrees Celsius above absolute zero.
0: Ooh, chilly.
2: Yeah, bring a jacket.
0: If you're enjoying Reach, be sure to tell your friends and leave us a rating and review in your podcast player of choice.
2: Or share an episode on social media.
0: And if you'd like to find us online, visit at Reach the Podcast on Twitter and Instagram or on our website at www.reachthepodcast.com.
2: Reach is a production of Soundsington Media, committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to soundsingtonmedia.com.
0: Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts.